U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the United States Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and as always, I am joined by Stephen, my XO. Hi there. Turns out, sound-powered phones don't require batteries. So, we're covering the War of 1812. We're still... (laughs) You're a jerk and you know it. (laughs) So, back into the War of 1812. Let's get underway. Let's. In contrast to the American militia, the Canadian militia performed well. French Canadians, who found the anti-Catholic stance of most of the U.S., very troublesome. And the United Empire Loyalists, who had fought for the crown during the American Revolutionary War, strongly opposed the American invasion, of course. However, many in Upper Canada were recent settlers from the United States, so they had no loyalties to the crown. Nevertheless, while those were some who sympathized with the invaders, the American forces still found very strong opposition from men loyal to the empire. So after Hull surrendered Detroit, General William Harry Henderson was given command of the U.S. Army of the Northwest. So he set to retake the city, which was now defended by Colonel Henry Proctor, who was working with Tecumseh. Remember our Native American friend? Yeah, no, Tecumseh. But Henryson needed to take it from Henry. Henry Harrison. Okay, so Double H versus Harry. Henry. Well, Henry versus Henry. Henry Harrison versus Henry Proctor. Guys, listen, if, if your kids are going to military school or they have a prospective future, let's just agree to give them all very unique names so we don't get into this situation. What well, we'll refer to them by last name. Will that make you feel better? Actually, yes. So a detachment of Harrison's army was defeated at Frenchtown along the River Raisin on January 22nd in 1813. Proctor left the prisoners with a very inadequate guard who could not prevent a lot of the North American aboriginals from attacking and killing probably as much as 60 Americans. Many of them were Kentucky militiamen. This incident became known as the River Raisin Massacre. And this defeat also ended Harrison's campaign against Detroit. And the phrase, remember the River Raisin, became a rallying cry for the Americans. So in May, Proctor and Tecumseh set siege to force Miggs in northern Ohio. American reinforcements arrived during this siege and were defeated by the natives, but the fort held out. The natives eventually began to leave, forcing Proctor and Tecumseh to go back to Canada. A second offensive was held against Fort Meigs, but it also failed in July. Now, they decided to try to improve Indian morale. So Proctor and Tecumseh attempted to storm Fort Stevenson. Any relation? Well, I didn't want to say anything, but yes, the family does have a a claim to that fort. We just choose not to exercise it because our 
time in the limelight has passed. So you, you know that it's a small American post on the Sandusky River? But of course. Why, why, why else would I have this deed saying, uh, can, can you spell that river real fast? Um, yes, right here. But you'll be pleased to know that it was repulsed with serious losses. So it ended the Ohio campaign. Yeah, why do you think my family's so proud of it? <laughs> good, 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 good. So, on Lake Erie, the American commander, Captain Oliver Hazard Perry, fought the Battle of Lake Erie in September of 1813. Finally, some naval action. He had a decisive victory, ensuring the American control of the lake, which also improved American morale after a number of defeats and compelled the British to fall back from Detroit. Now this paved the way for General Harrison to launch a, another invasion of Upper Canada, which ended up in the U.S. victory at the Battle of the Thames on October 5th, 1813, which is when Tecumseh was killed. Now his death ended the North American Indian alliance with the British in the Detroit region. And the control of Lake Erie meant that the British could no longer provide essential military supplies to their Indian allies, who dropped out of the war because of it. So the Americans controlled the area during the rest of the conflict. So with that victory, what is now the Midwest was no longer at risk from invasion of Canada. Right. Because the major... English allies, the Native Americans, were out of the fight now. Mm-hmm. And by controlling Lake Erie, they controlled the, you know, effectively water highway that is the uh, Great Lakes to and from the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So because of difficulties of land communications, control of the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence River were crucial. When the war began, the British had a small squadron of ships on Lake Ontario and had the advantage. So to fix the situation, the Americans established a Navy yard at Sackett's Harbor in New York and Commodore Isaac Chauncey took charge of the large number of sailors and shipwrights who were sent there. They completed the second warship in a mere 45 days. Ultimately, 3,000 men worked at the shipyard building 11 warships and a lot of smaller boats and transports. Now, they regained the advantage because of this sh shipbuilding program. Chauncey and Dearborn attacked York, which was the capital of Upper Canada, on April 27th. And, as we know, the Battle of York was an American victory. And it was a victory that was marred by looting and burning of the Parliament buildings and also a library. What the hell, guys? As you said last episode, these guys were firebugs. Listen, I'm not saying it's as bad as losing the Library of Alexandria, but leave the libraries alone. Please. Now, Kingston was actually strategically more valuable to the British supply communications along St. Lawrence. So without control of Kingston the U.S. Navy could not effectively control Lake Ontario or sever the British supply line from Lower Canada. 
So on May 27th, an American amphibious force was assaulted Fort George on the northern end of the Niagara River and captured it without any serious losses. But they didn't pursue the British forces that were retreating until most of them had escaped and organized a counteroffensive against the Americans at the Battle of Stony Creek on June 5th. Then on the 24th, with the help of advance warning by Laura Saccord, another American force was forced to surrender by a much, much smaller British and native force at the Battle of Beaver Dams. This marked the end of the American offensive into Upper Canada. Now, Commodore James Lucas Yao had taken charge of the British ships on the lake and mounted a counterattack, but it was repulsed at the Battle of Sackett's Harbor. And then Chauncey and Yao's squadrons fought two battles that were indecisive because both of them did not want to finish the fight. Mm-hmm. So... Designing uh, ships for, because the Great Lakes are inner seas, technically, with as large as they are. Anything you have to take into account for uh, something like that? Or were these ships, you know, just as capable on the open ocean as they would be in the Great Lakes? They just happen to be in fresh water. I don't believe there was any design differential, really, between open ocean vessels and lake vessels. The size of these lakes pretty much had the same effect on the vessels that a large ocean would as well. Okay. You still had heavy storms and heavy seas and things of that nature. The water was just drinkable. Ish? Well, I I don't think the Great Lakes were nearly as polluted back then as they are now. You still didn't want to drink the water. You still had bacteria and, you know, fish poop in that. Uh, yeah, yeah, like fish poop is too good for you. There, there's nutrients in there. Maybe. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I have found the topic to break you. Wonderful. So late in 1813, the Americans left Canadian territory around Fort George. And then the firebug came back again and they set fire to the village of Newark which is now Niagara-on-the-Lake. Canadian side, right? Yes. It, it pissed off the Canadians and politicians in control. Okay. I was going to ask, was there any strategic reason for this? Like any military uh, fortifications, any, like, you know, production yards for ships? Or was this purely a civilian town? Any town that's near military facilities is a military town. Hmm. When you're doing something like that, while it sucks for the civilians, you're also denying those resources to the enemy. Gotcha. But it ticked them off because many of the inhabitants were left without shelter and they froze to death in the snow. So this led to a British retaliation with the capture of Fort Niagara on December 18th. Now, early the next morning... The British and their native allies stormed the neighboring town of Lewingston in New York. And the firebugs back. They torched homes and buildings, killing about a dozen civilians. So as the British were chasing the surviving residents out of town, a small force of Tuscarora natives 
intervened and stopped their pursuit. They bought enough time for the locals to escape to safer ground. It is notable that the Tuscaroas defended the Americans against their own Iroquois brothers, the Mohawks, who sided with the British. And then later, the British attacked and burned Buffalo on December 30th. So in 1814, the contest for Lake Ontario turned into a building race. Naval superiority shifted between both of the fleets as each built new, bigger ships. However, neither was able to bring a battle to a position of superiority. So the engagements on Lake Ontario were a draw. Now, the British were more vulnerable on the stretch of the St. Lawrence, where it formed the frontier between Upper Canada and the U.S. And during the early days of the war, there was illegal commerce across the river. Now, over the winter of 1812 to 1813, the U.S. launched a series of raids from Ogdensburg on the U.S. side of the river and hampered the British supply traffic up the river. And then on February 21st, Sir George Prevost passed through Prescott on the opposite bank of the river with reinforcements for Upper Canada. So the same way that what is now Maine was the hotbed for illegal trade and smuggling, uh, at least on the Atlantic during the war, this spot was also a hotbed for smuggling and illegal trade for Americans wanting to make a buck but in the Great Lakes. Yeah, there was a lot of illegal training everywhere. But yeah, there were different hot spots. And this is one of them. Okay. So, Provost left the next day, and the reinforcements and local militia attacked. This was the Battle of Ogdensburg, and the Americans were forced to retreat. So, for the rest of the year, Ogdensburg had no Americans and many residents of Ogdensburg resumed visits and trade with Prescott. And this British victory, really, it removed the last American regular troops from the upper St. Lawrence frontier. And this also helped secure British communications with Montreal. So, late in 1813, the Americans made two pushes against Montreal. The overall plan eventually agreed on was for Major General Wade Hampton to march north from Lake Champlain and join General James Wilkinson. And then they would embark in boats from Sackett's Harbor on Lake Ontario and descend the St. Lawrence. Hampton was delayed by really bad roads and supply problems, but he really, really hated Wilkinson. You gotta love it when a personal vendetta clouds your common sense. Yeah. He had a 4,000 strong force. And he was defeated at Chottengay River by Charles de Salisbury's smaller force of Canadian voltagers and Mohawks. Wilkinson had a force of 8,000, but he was delayed by bad weather. So after learning that Hampton had been defeated, Wilkinson then heard that a British force after Captain William McCaster and Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Wanton Morrison were actually pursuing him. And then he was forced around November 10th to land near Morrisburg, about 90 miles from Montreal. 
On the 11th, Wilkinson's rear guard, which had about 2,500 men, attacked Morrison's force of 800 at Chrysler's farm. And then it was repulsed with very heavy losses. So once he learned that Hampton could not restart his advance, Wilkinson retreated to the U.S. and settled into winter quarters. He was like, I'm done for the winter. And then he resigned his command after he failed an attack on a British outpost at Lacole Mills. So his campaign could, in a word, be called a wash. Yeah. This is why you get along with your other forces. Mm-hmm. Because instead of a 4,000 guys here and 8,000 guys there, they could have been 12,000 guys right when they needed it. And you keep your ego in check so you don't waste your 4,000 guys. Or 8,000. Or 8, yeah. One was four, one was eight. They could have been 12. So by the middle of 1814, Major General Jacob Brown and Winfield Scott had improved the fighting abilities and had instilled discipline into their armies and then started to attack the Niagara Peninsula again and then quickly captured Fort Erie. Scott then gained a victory over a very weak British force at the Battle of Chippewa on July 5th and then attempted to advance further but was ended with a hard-fought battle at Lundy's Lane on July 25th. Now, the Americans were outnumbered and withdrew, but they did withstand a very, very long siege at Force Erie. The British, they suffered very heavy casualties in numerous failed assaults and were further weakened by exposure and shortage of supplies in their siege lines. So eventually the British had to raise the siege, but the Major General George Izzard took command at Niagara and followed up only very weakly. The Americans also lacked provisions, and so they eventually destroyed the fort and retreated across the Niagara. So, how much were the American troops outnumbered by in this siege? So the U.S. had around 2,800 men, while Canada had about 4,800 men. So it was two to one. Okay. I mean, definitely not great odds, but then again, if you're on the defensive and defending a fortified position, you know, your numbers will always be a lot more effective than the attacker. It is a general accepted rule that attacking a position you need at least three times the amount of men to be able to take it successfully. And as you can see, they were forced to lift the siege. They were not successful. Right. Well, and I was going to say, one of the common tactics with a siege is just, oh, well, we'll starve them out. And that only works if you have supplies coming to your lines. Because otherwise, you're both on that timetable then. Yeah, the supply side was not very good for either of them. So Napoleon abdicated and then 15,000 British troops were sent to North America under four of Wellington's brigade commanders. Less than half were veterans of the peninsula and the rest came from garrisons. 
Provost was ordered to neutralize American power on the lakes by torching Sackett's Harbor to gain naval control of Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, and the Upper Lakes and defend Lower Canada from attack. Now, he did defend Lower Canada, but otherwise he really failed to achieve his objectives. Because of how late in the season it was, he decided to invade New York State, and his army outnumbered the American defenders of Plattsburgh. But he was very, very worried about his flanks, so he decided he needed naval control of Lake Chaplin. Now, on the lake, the British squadron under Captain George Downey and the Americans under Master Commandant Thomas McDow were evenly matched. So once he reached Plattsburgh, Provost delayed assaulting it until the arrival of Downey in a hastily completed 36-gun frigate, HMS Confidence. I guess you would need confidence if you were in a hastily completed 36-gun frigate. I was going to say, was he naming it that to make up for his lack of it? Quite possibly. Okay. You know, maybe he even added some racing stripes to make it go faster. That's, you know, the kind of mindset, <laughs> the kind of mindset this guy seems to have. Yeah, and we'll, we'll paint flames on the barrels of the cannons. That'll make him even more devastating. Now... Provost forced Downey into a premature attack and then failed to provide the promised military backing. Downey was killed and his naval force defeated at the Battle of Plattsboro in Plattsboro Bay on September 11th in 1814. The Americans now had solid control of Lake Chaplin. Theodore Roosevelt, he said... Quote, it was the greatest naval battle of the war. Theodore Roosevelt, as in Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah. Was he even alive at this time? No. So it's, it's probably someone with the same name, but no relation to the president. Well, Theodore Roosevelt was a very big military leader. He could have used this in his, as an example for some other military campaign. President Teddy Roosevelt did make those comments about this engagement, but he was saying it after the fact with the perspective of a military historian, not as a first-hand account or, you know, second-hand account. Yeah. With probably 70 years between the event and him making that observation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to check because I was going to say like that. That doesn't seem to check out if he was president in the early 1900s and he was involved in the military in the 1812s. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I know the man lived a very colorful life, but I don't think he was uh, a Highlander. He participated in a lot of other military engagements, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we'll hear about him in about 80 years. I think it was 1858 when he first got uh, his feet under him for fighting. Oh, okay. I was thinking Rough Riders. He was general by that time, I think. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out in however many episodes it takes to get there. Probably not the Rough Rider. That was Army. Oh, he was in the Navy first, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, I believe so. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's one of the few presidents who's a shellback. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy in 1897, but he only served in the Army. Ah, okay. In 1898. Sorry, didn't mean to go down this rabbit hole. I just wanted some clarification if it was just a shared name situation or, you know, man, myth, the legend himself. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I know he's going to come up in this show at some point between Panama and his involvement in the, uh, what he called a lovely little war. And I forget what that conflict was called, but back on topic. All righty. So Provost decided to turn back, saying it was too hazardous to remain on enemy territory after the loss of naval supremacy, or the illusion they had of naval supremacy. One could say he lost his confidence. Easily. Provost was then recalled to London, and a court-martial was held. It decided that the defeat had been caused principally by his urging the squadron into premature battle and then failing to support the battle with land forces. So Provost suddenly died just before his own court-martial was to convene. Was there a corridor's report or? This isn't the first guy that's died just before a court-martial. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm aware. I'm just wondering if it's like... Po self-inflicted poison out of shame or someone who understandably was quite cross and it's like, you know what? I'm just going to make sure that uh, you don't get let off too easily. Yeah, he, he isn't the first guy to come down with a sudden case of death just before a sentencing hearing. I'm sure he won't be the last. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing on his death. Well, I, I was going to say, like, while coroner's reports weren't exactly uncommon in this time you know it also is quite possible that it was just uh every a lot of people wanted him dead and it's like oh no this is terrible the prisoners passed before the sentencing hearing oh well if he was murdered it was covered up yeah but his reputation sank to a new low because the canadians claimed that their militia under brock did the job and he failed so the Mississippi River Valley was the western frontier of the United States in 1812. The territory acquired in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 contained almost no U.S. settlements west of the Mississippi, except St. Louis and a couple forts and trading posts. Fort Belafonte, an old trading post, converted to a U.S. Army post in 1804, served as regional headquarters. Fort Osage, built in 1808, along the Missouri, was the westernmost U.S. outpost, and it was abandoned at the start of the war. Fort Madison, built along the Mississippi, which is now in Iowa, was also built in 1808 and had been attacked many times by British-allied Sauk since it was constructed. And in September, Fort Madison was abandoned after it was attacked and besieged by natives who had support from the British. This was one of the few battles fought west of the Mississippi, and Black Hawk played a leadership role. Now, little of note really took place on Lake Huron in 1813, but the American victory on Lake Erie 
and the recapture of Detroit isolated the British. During the, the winter, the Canadian party under Lieutenant Colonel Robert McDowell made a new supply line from York to Natawasaga Bay on Georgian Bay. Once he arrived at Fort Mackinac with supplies and reinforcements, he said he sent an expedition to attempt to recapture the trading posts of Pierre de Chin in the far west. Now, the siege of Pierre de Chin ended in a British victory on July 20th. Now, earlier in July, the Americans sent five vessels from Detroit to recapture Mackinac with a mixed force of regulars and volunteers from the militia, which landed on the island on August 4th. Now, they didn't even try to achieve surprise, and a brief battle ensued as the Battle of Mackinac Island. They were ambushed by natives and forced to retreat. The Americans found a new base at Natawasaga Bay, and on August 13th, they destroyed it. And then they found a schooner there. They then returned to Detroit, leaving two gunboats as a blockade to Mackinac. And then on September 4th, these gunboats were then taken unaware and captured by British boarding parties from canoes and small boats. It seems like gunboats are just never effective. Depends on whether you're attacking or defending. I, I suppose, but I think this is three for three now that gunboats have been used by a party involved in the conflict and they are just useless. Well, they were cheap and they were quick to build. But, I mean, on the bright side, Lake Huron left Mackinac under British control after this battle. <laughs> I, the War of 1812, in summary. Eh? Nothing changed, ultimately? Oh, yeah, no, that's the... Yeah, I, I was gonna say, like, all, all the death, all the destruction, and... Yeah, everything's as it was now. Same old, same old. Just more graves. Yeah, yeah. So the British, who were garrisoned at Pierre de Chon, then fought off another attack by Major Zachary Taylor. The British retained the upper hand until the end of the war here. Although the allegiance of several indigenous tribes that received British gifts and arms enabled them to control parts of what is now Michigan and Illinois, as well as the whole of modern Wisconsin. In 1814, U.S. troops retreated from the Battle of Credit Island on the upper Mississippi and then tried to make a stand at Fort Johnson, but they, they abandoned it pretty quickly, along with most of the upper Mississippi Valley. Then the U.S. was pushed out of the upper Mississippi region, but they held on to eastern Missouri and the St. Louis area. Now, two notable battles fought against the Sauk were the Battle of Cody Sands Desian in April 1815, which was at the mouth of the Osage River in the Missouri Territory, and the Battle of the Sinkhole in May near Fort Cap Auguris. Now, once there was peace, Mackinac and other captured territory was returned to the U.S., and some British officers and Canadians objected to handing back Prairie de Chong, and especially Mackinac, under the terms of the Treaty of Ghent. But the Americans retained 
and captured posts at Fort Malden near Amherstburg until the British complied with the treaty. So they said, we're not giving you back your stuff until you give us back ours. Listen, guys, mom and dad talked it out. We have to share and uh, give our crap back to each other. Well, I don't really want to. Now, fine, I'm going to keep playing with your toys then until you give me back mine. Mm-hmm. So, the fighting between the Americans and the Saw and other indigenous tribes continued through 1817, well after the war ended in the East. So, during the same timeline as this war, the Patriot War, the Creek War, were also happening. So, in March of 1814, Jackson led a force of Tennessee militia, Choctaw, Cherokee warriors, and U.S. regulars south to attack the Creek Indians. And on March 26th, Jackson and General John Coffey made a decisive defeat of the Creek at Horseshoe Bend. Now, were the Creek a, a British aligned tribe? Yes. Okay. They killed 800 of the 1,000 Creeks. Good Lord. And they suffered 49 dead and 154 wounded. They brought about 2,000 men. Now, Jackson pursued the Creeks until they surrendered. Most historians consider the Creek War as part of the War of 1812 because the British supported them. So in the autumn of 1813, an appeal was made by the Indians to the British by Governor of the Bahamas, George Cameron, for help in the Creek War. A late response from Lord Bathurst was sent in March of 1814, resulting in HMS Orpheus and HMS Shelburne being dispatched to the Bay of the Appalachia River to initiate first contact with the Indians in May, by which time the Creek War had ended. Now, the vessels did carry gifts and a message from the Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane, John Woodbine, and an auxiliary officer of the Royal Marines, who was appointed as the British agent to the Indians. Woodbane discovered that in addition to the Indians at the Appalachia River, there were also refugees at Pensacola. So on June 23rd, Sir Alexander Cochrane told the Admiralty a letter supposedly from the Indian chiefs who had come aboard the Orpheus. They promised to join any body of troops that should aid them in regaining their lands, and suggested an attack on the Tower of Mobile. Now, they received a, some encouraging correspondence from the commander of the Orpheus. So Cochrane sent a company of Royal Marines, who was commanded by Edward Nichols, aboard the vessels HMS Hermes and HMS Karen, with more supplies for the Indians, and a proclamation from Cochrane. In addition to training the Indians... Nichols was tasked to raise a force from escaped slaves as part of the Corps of Colonial Marines. And that's that group we were talking about last episode. Yes. In July, General Andrew Jackson complained to the governor of Pensacola that combatants from the Creek War were being harbored in Spanish territory and was told of the British presence on Spanish soil. Huh. So he gave an angry reply to Jackson and Manrique was alarmed at the weak position he found himself in. He went to the British for help, 
and Woodbine and Nichols arriving at Pensacola on August 24th said, okay, I mentioned earlier the Patriot War. James Wilkinson captured Mobile, Alabama from the Spanish in March and built fortifications. The first engagement between the British and their Creek allies against the Americans was an attack on Fort Bower, which was on Mobile Point. Now, capturing the force would enable the British to move on Mobile and thereby block Louisiana's trade. And then from Mobile, the British could move overland to Natchez to cut off New Orleans from the north. But the attack on Fort Bower was a defeat for the British. Now, Andrew Jackson had heard that the British were organizing ships and armies for a large-scale invasion. The British had established a military presence of up to 200 Marines at Pensacola in the neutral Spanish West Florida at the end of August 1814. So Jackson took a force of 4,000 men and took the town in November. How little confidence do you have in your own troops that you need 4,000 to remove 200? Maybe he just thought, I got 4,000. Instead of paying them to sit on their butts, I'm going to take them down and take this town. Uh, fair enough, I suppose. And, I mean, if you really want to hedge your bets in your favor by making it 20 to 1, that, that just seems really excessive. But I'm no expert. Well, also, any survivors would take back word of the superiority of numbers that is now in the area hmm. and possibly keep any further invasion attempts out of there. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. So Jackson's force moved to New Orleans in Louisiana in late 1814. He used 1,000 regulars and then three to 4,000 militia, pirates, and other fighters, as well as civilians and slaves which he sent to work on the fortifications that he decided to build just south of the city. So the British brought 8,000 regulars under General Edward Packenham and attacked on January 8th in 1815. The Battle of New Orleans was an American victory because the British failed to take the fortifications. The British, they suffered a very high casualty rate, 291 dead. 1,262 wounded, 484 captured or missing, while the Americans, 13 dead, 39 wounded, 19 missing. Uh, let's be honest, the 19 missing just got caught up in Mardi Gras. Oh yeah, they were collecting them beads. Yeah, I mean, when, when in New Orleans, enjoy yourself. But yeah, that is a very impressive, you know, difference in casualty rate oh yeah huge you're also looking at 5,000 versus 8,000 yeah so of course this was hailed as a great victory which also made Jackson a national hero which also helped propel him to the presidency in early 1815 the British decided to give up on New Orleans and move over to Mobile for a second attack. In one of the last military battles of the war, 1,000 British troops that had already failed last year took the fort. Good for them. 
and won the Battle of Fort Boyer on February 12th. Then the news of peace arrives the next day, and they abandon Fort Boyer and sails home. <laughs> we did it, guys. We got the Union Jack over. Oh, look, reinforcements. Hey, guys, good news. We're all heading home. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think we're going to go ahead and end that here on that note. It's been a massive roller coaster. Ups and downs, ups and downs. We got arsonists, we got idiots, we got a complete loss of confidence. And they lost the confidence. Yeah, yes, yes. Not only did he lose his confidence, he lost the confidence. I mean, it's just, frankly, I'm surprised he even made it back to the UK. And then died shortly after, right before his court-martial. Out of embarrassment, of course. Nothing nefarious. Of course. Yeah, there was no cover-up. Never. Governments don't cover anything up. No, heavens no. All right, everybody. Well, thank you guys for joining us. If you want to contact us and say hi, you can at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can now tweet at us at USN History Pod. Stephen, any last words? We look forward to you all coming in next week and listening to the next episode. And we will finally start going into the details of some of these engagements. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave a review. Oh, Stephen, uh, the showbacks, oh, I volunteered you to be, they need to practice greasing. No. I volunteered you. No, no. Not like this. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>